Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. Hey everyone, this is Vikram from Quantlayer. Thank you for listening to our lucky number 13 podcast. All right, this one was a lot of fun. Faison and I discussed the alerting platform we're building for crypto investors and traders. We then cover how Ethereum miners are rolling in dough and the gives and takes of proof of work. We talk about a few really interesting alerts that hit this week. A land estate bug we found in Decentraland, an EOS vulnerability that exploits RAM, a Stratus node vulnerability that's been around for almost a year, and a Bitcoin cash vulnerability. It was a very busy week. We also talk about how the crypto space has really gotten a new wave of people interested in learning about how finance works and what crypto teams will have to do to keep that interest going. If you like our podcast so far, please hit subscribe and rate and review us because that would help us a lot. Enjoy. Hey everyone, you got Quantlayer here, Vikram speaking. I'm joined by Fizan, also known as the Wizard. Hey Fizan. Hey, how's it going? Good, good. So we are into lucky episode number 13. That's right. Thought it would be a good time to reflect a little bit what we're building and the kind of activity we've been seeing on our platform. So for those of you listening for the first time, we're Quantlayer. We're building a cryptocurrency market intelligence platform for investors and traders. So a major, major issue right now that we have with the crypto market is that there aren't a lot of great research tools out there that can help market participants wade through the amount of information that flies around in the space. And in particular, especially the mature type of research tools like they are with the stock market, where we have things like Bloomberg, Street Account, FactSet, Capital IQ. For example, because information flies around all over the place in crypto, you know, we have stuff like teams putting out news in their chat rooms. They put out what they call, quote unquote, press releases on Medium. They have days pass between important vulnerability fixes or bug fixes in their source code from when they talk about it in public. So in that regard, it's really not like the stock market uh, where we have market moving information live in a few, just a handful of places. So how do you deal with that? Uh, That's basically where we come in. Our platform aggregates important market moving and market informing sources of information for traders and investors. It surfaces it all in a really nice UX So the type of stuff we surface, we surface important information in a real-time feed. So you can see updates to the Lightning Network, see important GitHub commits for coins, see what news teams are putting out, what chat admins are saying before they put it out anywhere else. We also have this ability to search by coin or message, so which I think is really cool because you can look up terms like bug or vulnerability, which Faison, I think you pointed out recently. Yeah, uh, one of the things I like to do, uh, not just having the uh, you know platform running in the background, delivering these alerts live in doing research, is to use specific search terms. So we'll talk more about some things that we found today, just looking through vulnerability. But you know, if you're looking for specific specific issues in the space, like if you're looking for fraud, or uh, you know SEC actions, or some uh, news related to a given exchange. Like the search is a really good way to just filter down through all of these different news sources and actual chatter and GitHub and just get a really good view sort of historically of, of what the conversation has been around the given topic. So it's a great way to do uh, research. Yeah, and we'll link to uh, a few screenshots of the platform in the show notes so you guys can see what it looks like. But a couple of things that came in today, which are kind of interesting. So uh, Zcash put out some news about their sapling update, which is their network upgrade for, for Zcash. So we have this article summary mechanism where when articles come in, we can programmatically summarize some of them. And it allows users to very quickly you know, scan a news article. If they want to actually find out more about uh, what's in it, they can just click on the source and read the, the full article. 
So we saw a little bit of Zcash uh, sapling news come in. We saw some Lightning Network updates. So this is the uh, second layer solution built on top of Bitcoin. And it uh, looks like there was a spike in the last. So we basically track Lightning Network update in terms of nodes, channel count, and Bitcoin capacity. All three are interesting. Uh, one I think is interesting in particular is the amount of capacity that's tied up in the Lightning Network. Because uh, in order to navigate that network, integrate with that network, you actually have to lock up your Bitcoin to use it. So seeing that number go up is always interesting. Seeing it go down, of course, is interesting too. But it looks like in the last couple hours as of today, uh, it spiked from about 82 to 87 Bitcoin capacity. So it's not a ton in the grand scheme of things. And eventually that number will be a lot higher, but it, it will be important to track that kind of thing long term. And just broadly, you know, just want to give you guys an idea of the kind of activity we've been seeing uh, just in terms of the amount of alerts that come through the platform. You know, last week we had on a daily basis around 2000 alerts come in. Uh, The lowest day was about 1000. I think that was a Sunday, so it was probably quiet all around. So a little about about around 12,000 alerts came in in the last week or so. So you should come check it out, quantlayer.com. That's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R.com. You can sign up for our alpha, check out what we're building, or just email me directly at vikram at quantlayer.com. That's uh, V-I-K-R-A-M as in Monero at quantlayer.com. Tell us the kind of stuff that you want to be alerted on. Yeah. We're always adding new sources and new points of alert. And it's funny because the genesis of this podcast was partially just us going through all of these alerts and all this news and just discussing it for quite a long time in the office. And I think we realized like we should probably record some of these discussions. Right. So that, that I think that was one of the motivations behind us starting this, not just, uh, you know, seeing what Elon Musk is up to. Right. (laughs) So, you know, there's been a bunch of interesting crypto related alerts, of course, come, come through pretty recently. Faison, I think you pointed out a few of these from, today and I think the last, basically in the last day, right? Yeah. Yeah. These are ones that are all from the last, I would say last couple of days, most of these very recent. So one, uh, the title is miner says it costs just $152 to mine one ETH. And with ETH prices being around the $300 mark, that's a pretty big deal that, you know, that basically means that prices could drop quite a bit and it would still be profitable for these guys to continue mining. The article goes into basically some of the economics of mining at different price points of electricity. So I'll just quote here from the article. Brian Ventura, co-founder of a mining farm with 3,000 GPU rigs called Atlantic Crypto, stated this Monday that at just 12 cents per kilowatt hour, it costs only $152 to mine one ETH. If you assume an average electrical cost of $0.12 cents per kilowatt hour with the purchasing power of one ETH currently equaling 1.27 megawatt hours would equal to a value of US dollar 152 per ETH. And, you know, some places like North Dakota, Washington, Idaho have $0.08 cent electricity. So that brings your mining costs down closer to the, to the $100 mark. And I think can go even lower. So what's not included in this article was the sort of capital cost that's already been baked in from uh, buying all the hardware. But it's still interesting that all of these miners are saying that they have a lot of margin, even with prices being significantly down from where they were around this time last year. Yeah. And I think that'll be interesting with respect to because uh, I'm still not totally clear on what miners are thinking around if Ethereum does move to proof of stake, like what are they going to do with all their capacity? Are they going to go to a different coin? Like, I don't know, what what do the profitability metrics look like for some other coins right now? Because if the price is around 300 and the cost is around 150, that's a pretty solid margin yeah. compared to a t- most or many other coins out there right now. Yeah, that's an interesting interesting thought because if some of this hardware is forced to other coins, then the question becomes like, uh, what coins are those going to be? And what are the effects going to be on them having suddenly more powerful mining networks? Like, what's the implication of that? Right, right. Because if we see a bunch of, you know, my guess, I'm just totally guessing, 
the way this will work is that the miners will shift their hash power towards a couple other coins and they'll look for, uh, you know, probably high market cap, maybe Ethereum Classic, maybe some other coins of the proof of work. They're going to have to move to other proof of work coins that have a high market cap. So maybe, uh, maybe they'll move in that direction. That's just my guess. Another thing that becomes interesting is in relative equilibrium, when it's profitable for the like miners to mine the largest coin for a given algorithm, like their resources are going to be driven there. But when suddenly most of the mining capacity for that algorithm can no longer mine that coin. So, you know, we're talking about them going to some of the most popular coins, but I also wonder if it's suddenly because the dynamic shifts so suddenly if there's actually a lot of opportunity for them to perform 51% attacks on much smaller coins that wasn't economical before. Right, right. That's interesting right, so too. On the other end of the spectrum. So we'll see. I think it'll there'll be a lot of interesting fallout from that. Yeah. I also wonder what will happen like the moments before the switch from proof of work to proof of stake. I don't like I don't know what the plan is really. Um, And I don't actually think there's a plan for it yet, but say the minutes to hours before the switch, is the hash power going to remain constant? Uh, I guess, I guess we'll see because they're going to have to turn off their, it's still a decent amount of electricity, right? Right. So they're going to mine up to a certain point and then just stop. Yeah, that's actually, that's interesting. So I guess one thing this does bring up is just this general discussion around energy usage and proof of work. Because I see a lot, this is particularly around Bitcoin. I don't see yeah, the discussion much around other coins. Like a million transatlantic flights or like, you know, a thousand trips around the solar system <laughs> on a rocket ship to mine one Bitcoin. Right. Uh, a lot of those sorts of articles. Right. And like obviously looking at the uh, electrical impact of mining is meaningful, but most of the analogies that you see out there are pretty shit. And the reason is that when you're mining, the mining electricity expended to mine one Bitcoin is not just to mine that Bitcoin. It's essentially to secure this network that's processing these transactions and also to maintain the validity of all previous transactions and all holdings of the people in the network. It's not just that marginal Bitcoin. And if you compare that to traditional banking, to me, that would be the same as all of the Brinks trucks that are driving around, ATMs, tellers. Like all of the physical infrastructure that's utilized to accomplish some of the same tasks. Jamie Diamond salary. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't we talk about that before? Like we should I feel like put, this, a, this put up an like infographic. Yeah, yeah. We should have an infographic of like Bitcoin mining costs versus all the bank CEO salaries. Just see how yeah. they compare. If you just take Brinks trucks driving around and we won't call, necessarily call out Brinks, but just, you know, all armored trucks driving around. I'm pretty sure there's probably a pretty decent amount of gas being burned just for that. Right. But it's not to say that it isn't to concern. Like, I I understand the concern. It makes sense. You know, one group of people that actually is pretty upset about GPUs being mined are actually gamers. Because a lot of the craze around GPU mining, for example, for Ethereum, for Zcash, a bunch of other GPU mineable coins have driven the price up. So... Hardcore gamers end up spending a lot more to play games that require higher GPU power. So that affects them directly. And I think like if you go into like gaming boards, you can see a lot of animosity towards crypto people. Yeah, that's fair. I think GameStop had some some like limit or they're asking people like, are you going to actually be using this for gaming or are you going to use this for crypto mining? Yeah, I um, think a lot of places start uh, put caps on like you can only buy two GPUs. Or, you know, you, you basically on bulk purchases as a way to fight back against people uh, right. buying for mining. But it also brings up like an interesting philosophical question because a lot of people who uh, bring up this energy wastage argument, they're presupposing that it's a waste because Bitcoin is worthless, Right. But energy is used for all kinds of things like entertainment. Of course, like G- we just talked about GPU mining and gamers, right? And I'm not saying what gamers are doing is useless at all. It's, it's fine. It's a form of entertainment. Um, it's esports and stuff. It's actually a form of economy now. So it's just interesting to see how that will play out long term. But I can certainly see a state where like Bitcoin gets big enough where it's taking up enough energy. It might affect the 
energy usage of particular areas, probably maybe driving up yeah. costs for residents and whatnot. So We're, we've seen that in a few isolated uh, circumstances, I think at like the municipal and regional level. So the specific town um, where this happened escapes me, but if I remember correctly, uh, and we can, you know, look this up and follow up on it, but like there was a t- town somewhere that like residents had relatively inexpensive electricity up to a certain cap and then it becomes more expensive. And a few uh, companies started mining there. And so they are hitting the cap very quickly. And so essentially electricity becomes more expensive for everyone a lot sooner uh, yep. because the miners are burning through the cap. And so you are seeing some things like that starting to occur. Yep. So uh, there are projects that are trying to find other ways of securing these networks. And we should have some of these the dev teams of these coins on because it is pretty interesting just to hear what they're doing. So there's projects like Burst Coin, tickers B-U-R-S-T. There's Chia Coin, which is not out yet, but they are trying to use this concept of proof of capacity, which has to do with like hard drive space mm-hmm. in order to secure the network. So we'll see where those projects go. Uh, it'll be interesting. Yeah. So another alert that came up, and it, I literally just went to go look it up right before we started recording. So how did I find this? I just went to the app and in the search bar, I put in bug. And then I toggled the search to search for content instead of coin symbol. And voila, this was the second link of today. So Decentraland, the ticker is MANA, M-A-N-A. It, it kind of reminds me of what Second Life was. Do you ever mess around with that? Uh, No. Okay. It was basically this like virtual platform where you had an avatar and you would interact with other people in their own avatars. And it was Wait, kind of I like... Think- was this like around 1999, 2000, 2001 era? Uh, no, it was a little bit. It was like 2005, 2006, around then. Okay, then uh, no, in that case. Okay. You know, it gained a lot of popularity for a little while. There were plots of land that you could buy in Second Life. And I think co- some companies were even advertising on there. And they were going for uh, pretty ridiculous sums of money. They had the, they had their own currency called Linden Dollars. Linden Labs was the name of the company that that made Second Life. And so this reminds me a little bit of that without like the graphical interface. They're trying to set up a virtual world and they're auctioning off pieces of land. It gained a ton of popularity in back in November when crypto was taking October, November, December, back when crypto was taking off. And it was, I think, digital current, Barry Silbert of Digital Currency Group, who we've talked about before with respect to Ethereum Classic. I think he has been a big investor in Decentraland. So we just saw a bug come in and the title of the bug is Fix Land Estate Bug. And if you are, if you invest in the project, like I'm just putting my shoes, I don't have any of this. I don't own any Decentraland, but I put myself in the shoes of a of someone who does, and then I'm a bit concerned by this fixed land estate bug. So what does that mean? So if you actually go to the alert, we have a link to the commit. And a commit message is basically like, what was the last change between before and now with respect to a piece of source code? And when commit messages are written well, you can kind of figure out what's going on. So we'll just walk through this real quick together and I'll just read through it. So it says fix land estate bug. So the uh, there's four bullets, basically. One, fix land estate bug. Two, feature, enhance, create estate tests and add update lands owned by estate metadata tests. Not totally clear what that means, but okay. Then there's a refactor, remove bad account. And then a chore, specify someone tries to steal land. Okay, that that one sounded a little concerning. So I thought that was kind of interesting to look at. Yeah. So from reading through it, a lot of this update is uh, adding adding test coverage, and yep. generally that's a good way to figure out what what changed because it's harder sometimes just by looking at the at the code. And the impression that I get was that essentially it, it was, there was it was possible for someone to steal land, and also for the old owner of land to update that land as well. Like those were the two possible let's call them attack vectors. And essentially, they're fixing the ability for that to happen and also potentially removing an account that was already uh, corrupted or causing trouble. Right. So that's a pretty big deal. Yeah. And just out of curiosity, like I wonder what their deployment process is here because they put up this commit, right? 
this is all open source. You can just read this. Has this mm-hmm. been deployed to their mainnet yet? Because I can imagine there's scenarios where bug fixes have gone into GitHub that are not deployed live just yet. Yeah, I, the answer is I don't know. And this is where, like, what's going to be the protocol for something like this? Like, let's say I'm an investor, like, or I hold a lot of this coin. And who do I talk to to get this question answered on their end? Right. And so I think we're we're going to need to see a more formal process for interacting with this sort of information. Right. And there's uh, it's sensitive, too, because you don't necessarily want to have the whole world know that you found this, right? Say you are an investor. Yeah. And this is a very large bug. Let's say, not that this one is, but say it was. Yeah. You don't want to like put up a GitHub issue and say, hey, has this been deployed to mainnet yet? Or you don't want to tweet at them and say, hey, has this been deployed to mainnet yet? Because any malicious actor would see that. Yeah. Like in the security world, there is a protocol for uh, responsible disclosure. But with like essentially a lot of these GitHubs being public, how do how do the two mesh together? Do you know what I mean? Right. Like, how do you fix? Because with the responsible disclosure, you know, I think people may have heard of like these bug bounties. I find a exploit on Facebook. I let them know about it. I give them a certain amount of time to fix it, and then I also let them know like in ninety days I'm going to uh, publish this exploit. And so that a gives them time to fix it uh, before anyone is affected, but also motivates them to fix it because it's going to go public. But that doesn't necessarily work here if your if your code is open source. Right. And another interesting thing, if you actually go to the pull request, you can see the time that I mean this is common. There's nothing like secret about this. It's all open source. You can see this. So you go to the pull request where the bug was merged in, you see what time it was opened, right? You mm-hmm. see the time of the different comments. So this thing was opened 14 hours ago. The first set of comments looks like it was about either 13 or eight hours ago. Looks like it was 13 hours ago. So there's an hour difference there. Then there was another set of comments eight hours ago, right? Mm-hmm. That's a giant, uh, that's like a whole day. That's a whole work day. Yeah. So to your point about responsible disclosure and whatnot, it's uh, it's going to be important here. Yeah. Like, you know, I think ever there's a tendency to think that like radical transparency is good where just everything is out in public. But where you have the risk of assets being tampered with or stolen, I think that complicates the issue a little bit. Yep. And that's what we're seeing. Yep. Oh, yeah. There's this EOS vulnerability that you found, too. Yeah. So, well, I, I did the hard work of reading an article. I unfortunately didn't find the find the vulnerability. <laughs> but, yeah, so my sort of, I'll sometimes pick a theme when I'm just going through and doing research. And so this time I was just looking for, like, let's see what's going on in terms of vulnerabilities. And so uh, EOS basically has one where you can create a transaction that will, like, use up all of a user's RAM. So the way that that works is, uh, and I'll quote from the article, a malicious user can install code on their account which will allow them to insert rows in the name of another account, sending them tokens. This lets them lock up RAM by inserting large amounts of garbage into rows when dApps slash users send them tokens. So, you know, this is something that uh, they were able to push a uh, workaround. So users must use a proxy, which is an account with no RAM, to make transactions. But basically, this is something that needs a emergency update, and they're trying to figure that out. Interesting. Yeah. And what's neat is just, you know, when you know you see vulnerability, you see EOS, and then if you search like EOS vulnerability, you can see historically that it has been something that they have been uh, struggling with. <laughs> I'm just laughing because this is a quite controversial uh, coin. Oh, okay. like very, it, it's raised like four, block one is the parent company that, raised $4 billion for EOS that it did like a year long ICO. Yeah. But it's tokens were trading on exchanges before the ICO was complete. So it's just a bunch of weird stuff going on with this one. So anytime something else comes up, it's just uh, kind of funny. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's the issue there. Another one that I found was for uh, Stratus and this one was uh, GitHub. So, the, you know, the word vulnerability actually showed up in the 
GitHub commit. And basically, there's a pull request, and then the pull request uh, references an issue. And uh, the issue is called nodes that are catching up are vulnerable. Hey, Faison, before we dive into this, do you mind just explaining to the listeners who might not understand what the difference between like a pull request and an issue is and how they're related? Sure. So on GitHub for a given code base, uh, you will have like a repository. And the way to contribute uh, code is essentially by, so let's say I have this big chunk of code that represents my quant coin wallet. And I want to make a change to the wallet code because I have insert, create, I just found that what I did created has a vulnerability. And so I would create a branch and essentially have a alternate version of the code, like the version of the, that I want the code to be. And then what I do is I propose those changes. So what a pull request is, is essentially a way to look at what was there before, what I'm proposing, and what are the differences between the two. So it lets you easily scan the difference, sort of, it's like the before and after. And it's an easy way to like review it, make comments on it, have a conversation around the specific implementation. An issue yeah. is is just a way on the repository to have a discussion around like, let's say I discovered a vulnerability, I could just open an issue and say, hey, I've discovered a vulnerability. We can have a conversation about it, what we see the fix might be, and then we can create a pull request that would resolve that, if that makes sense. Yeah, so I guess the pull request part is kind of, this is a crude analogy, but it's kind of like track changes. You might have a document you're sharing with a few people, you track some changes, and then you can see what was different, especially in the legal world, I think this is super important. You can see what changed and what's current, yep. um, also known as a diff. But again, even if you don't code, like just take a look at some of this stuff because it's always pretty interesting. So yeah, coming back to the specific uh, issue, so nodes that are catching up are vulnerable. And I'll just quote the entire issue. Nodes that are catching up with the longest chain are vulnerable to malicious peers that can, during the catch-up, serve a fake longer chain. <laughs> And then proposed by Aprogena, that's another user, to not sync from inbound connections during that phase. And so then there's a discussion about what the solution is. And then some say, like, don't, you know, don't pull from inbound connections. And then I think they decide to allow whitelisted nodes as inbound connections. So basically, it sounds like if you spin up a node and you need to catch up to the latest block, uh, people can like you malicious peers can send you incorrect longest block, which is a problem. Then, you know, the thing that actually came through on our alert was the, the pull request where there's the fix for that. And so that's in, in the Stratus uh, code now. So this one's uh, just to go back to the time thing we talked about earlier. So the initial vulnerability was brought up January 31st and there was not much discussion and then it was the issue was closed, and then it was reopened again on uh, May twenty first. Maybe, maybe that was by accident. It was just closed and reopened the same day. I don't know. People do that sometimes. Um, yeah. It's hard to tell. So Jan thirty one was this is August twenty eighth. Okay, so this was open Jan thirty one. There was yeah. some discussion in May. Then nothing happened, and then someone commented nine days ago, and then finally it was closed more recently. So. There's going to be some vulnerabilities. Like if you're a malicious actor, like we talked about with the last one, you can definitely pay attention to these. And if they don't get closed out soon, that's an area of risk for your network. Yeah. Continuing on the topic of vulnerabilities. So, you know, we've talked about a bunch that we found in GitHub where it's something fundamental to the to the uh, network or the, you know, node. But another vector that's also a big problem is just like falsified information from trusted sources. And so what I mean by that is like, oh, you know, a lot of people use a handful of the same sources to get their information, be it CoinMarketCap or Etherscan and incorrect, or, you know, if there were some hackers or somehow managed to manipulate information on there, that can definitely have some consequences on prices and that sort of thing. So recently some hackers were able to get into Etherscan and they just left a, we'll call it a friendly message, one three three seven. You've been hacked, 
yeah. as an alert pop-up and they didn't do anything else. But you can imagine if they were interested in doing some sort of price manipulation or something a little more insidious, that, that could be a problem. And so, you know, that just that creates a question of how do you vet your sources? And, you know, number one is like if you can run a node and get that information from a number of peers so you know that you are connected to the consensus, that's the best thing. But there are certain types of information where that's not the case. And I guess it's just still a source of risk. Yeah, so I'm just reading through the article summary. Although hackers might have pulled out the stunt just to draw Etherscan's team's attention, it remains to be seen how efficiently such hacks can be prevented in the future. There's not a lot, a lot, a lot, a whole lot of information around this one. Yeah. Yeah, and there was this uh, last alert that came through. It's quite a dramatic title. Bitcoin core developer could have wiped Bitcoin cash from existence. Oh, wow. That's a very extreme headline. Yeah. <laughs> So I'll read, I'll read through this one real quick. So this is from our article summary in the platform. According to reports out last week, a, lo- a lone Bitcoin core developer found a huge vulnerability on the Bitcoin Cash network back in April, one that could have been used to cause some serious damage to Bitcoin Cash. Uh, then it goes on and talks about like how there's a lot of conflict and uh, tension between Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. And we were talking about responsible disclosure earlier. And it, you know, I think this is an example where that was handled well. Yep. Where the, you know, I think Corey Fields, who found the issue, let them know about it and gave them time to fix it before going public. Even though, given the right, the vitriol between the two, yeah, could, he could have easily not done so. Yeah, as far I mean, this I'll just quote what he says because uh, it's interesting. The Bitcoin Cash vulnerability. This is Corey speaking. Corey Field speaking. The Bitcoin Cash vulnerability that I discovered was successfully disclosed and mitigated, and ultimately had no noticeable impact on the cryptocurrency. It would be a shame, though, if the ecosystem did not benefit from an analysis of such a substantial near miss. As cryptocurrency developers, it's necessary to take a step back now and then to reevaluate the tools at our disposal as well as the policies and procedures that we put in place. We may not be able to eliminate the threat of bugs like these, but we can learn from them and be prepared, better prepared to handle them in mm. the future. So a pretty reasonable response. So uh, one other thing I wanted to talk about outside of alerts, but just generally speaking, was how broadly crypto has really opened up people's eyes to how markets work. And... So, I mean, I come historically from finance and I think that there's a lot of smoke and mirrors in traditional finance. People use all kinds of jargon and words. And I think average investors don't have the kind of insight that that they should. So I think crypto has really opened up people's eyes in terms of how markets work, what bid-ask spreads mean, what exchanges are and things like that. And in traditional finance, I think we took a lot of these things for granted. Say you trade off of like Scott Trade or Ameritrade or E-Trade, you might not know the underpinnings of those things because they've been kind of around so long. But if you're a crypto trader and you trade off of Binance or Bittrex, like you know what the, not everyone, but I think a lot of people do know what the issues there are there, like what it means for your wallet to be down and things like that. So I think a lot of this has to do with how public the stuff is. So either through Twitter or YouTube or Telegram, you can take a look into a pretty fledgling industry and see how it's progressing real time. I mean, Bitcoin's 10 years old, but these alts are pretty young compared to Bitcoin. So it is definitely a fledgling industry and it's it's interesting to see how it just progresses. So for a lot of people, I think stocks might have been boring or unattainable, but crypto has changed some of that. Yes, of course, it's, it's generated tons of ton of moon boys we've talked about before. But it's also brought a lot of fundamental questions to the table, like what money is, what inflation is, how inflation is a hidden tax on us, why your dollar is going to be worth less in a decade or two from now, what scarcity is, and that sort of thing. So no matter what happens to the space, even if it all just completely explodes, I don't think these, I don't think this stuff should get discounted. So one one example I'll give is, you know, a light bulb that goes off in everyone's head when they start looking at crypto is when they realize what inflation does to your savings. So 
you pay a tax to the government every year in April, but you're also at the whims of central banks and what they plan to do with interest rates. So that's what the hidden tax is. It's not like a secret conspiracy by central banks or anything like that. It's literally when inter- when they keep interest rates close to zero, guess what? Your dollars that are sitting in the bank don't earn anything over time and are worth a lot less in the future. So that, I mean, that's a problem because that means you can't buy as much as you expect you could or would later on. So, you know, I think that's really interesting. I think crypto has also brought a ton of fraud and market manipulation into the limelight. So if you didn't read the Wall Street Journal, you probably weren't super dialed into traditional markets being manipulated the way they are. So even as recently as the credit crisis in 2008, I don't think people knew very well what was going on. And I don't think it was understood broadly until even a movie like B- The Big Short came yeah, out. Yeah, that's definitely true. I think most people's understanding of a lot of Wall Street is what probably closer to the movie representation than the reality. Right. So you had stuff like Big Short, Wolf of Wall Street, you know, exposing some manipulation. But outside of that, like you just said, I mean, what do the, what do most people know about that kind of manipulation, not much. So another issue with traditional finance is that people in traditional finance can often gloss over things by using language that is completely unnecessary. So if you read The Economist or The Wall Street Journal, you'll see tons of jargon. And the problem with this jargon, it makes it inaccessible to a lot of people. Of course, in theory, we should expect people to you know, if they see jargon, go find a dictionary, see what that means and then understand it. And But people aren't going to do that. I think what is better is if you just keep the jargon at a minimum and you can have a lot of more people involved in the discussion. And I just think a lot of the jargon is just totally unnecessary. So I'll just give a quick example of this. So uh, nominal versus real interest rates. So I can already hear people's eyes glazing over. But what are these? So These are unnecessary terms for very simple ideas. So a nominal interest rate is an interest rate that doesn't include inflation. This is like an interest rate of 3% on a $100,000 loan means that you pay $3,000 in interest uh, without considering any inflation. And a real interest rate is an interest rate that does include inflation. So before we were talking about 3% interest rate on a $100,000 loan. Now, if inflation was 1%, you'd have a 2% real interest rate. All this stuff is really straightforward. But once you use terms like, okay, nominal interest rate and real interest rate, it just starts muddying the conversation for onboarding new people to understand the space. So it's it's fundamentally not complicated. So this rate, why not in this instance, why not just call it interest rate without inflation and interest rate with inflation? I think that's just a simple example. And then once you get into weird derivatives, all the bits are off. And I mean, underwriters of those things barely even understand what they are. Mm. But in crypto... Coming back to crypto, you ask people what's going on and they start talking about bid ask spreads, why Gemini is better than Coinbase for certain trades, how arbitrage works across exchanges. And they talk about them in terms that are pretty easy to follow. So on the market manipulation side, I think people understand it better too. So it's all really obvious and visible, like pump and dump schemes, exchanges, wash trading. That's when the exchange, a single exchange in order to boost their volume metrics, they'll just kind of trade with itself. ICO teams lying to the public, large groups of people trying to corner the market, things like that. So people just get it because we can talk about all this stuff in plain English. So there's still a lot of weird stuff going on and it's not perfect, but I think it's the right step in heading towards a place where we're explaining things better. So along those lines, I think one area that there's a lot of work to do is improving discussions and explanations on the technical aspects of things. So by that, I mean not the 200-day moving average or the Ichimoku cloud and things like that, but technical as in software technical. So that's an area I think will need help. And it doesn't help at all when you see lead devs of different cryptocurrencies gloss over things with unintelligible jargon. The problem is that you see people who are not technical say something like, I don't know what you just said, but I trust you, right? And in response, I don't think that's that's good. So I think basic things should be explainable. There's probably some complexity, of course, in implementation, but I don't think it needs to be insanely technical, full of jargon. I don't know. What do you think, Fizan? Yeah, um, I agree with you in some points, and I disagree with you in, in others. I think 
Definitely unnecessary jargon uh, serves no one. I think there's a context in which it is useful to be able to pack a concept into a word so that you can have a conversation at a higher level with a group of people that are like on the same page. And I guess I would, you know, I would, I would break this out into like when you're like, let's say you're a dev for one of these coins and you're explaining some proposed, let's say switch from proof of work to proof of stake. So, you know, there's, the summary aspect, like the motivation for why you're doing it, the implementation and the impacts. And I think a lot more of the summary motivation and impact needs to be delivered in like, you know, layman's English. Yep. But conversations around implementation, I think the expectation is you are speaking to someone that is more of a peer in terms of understanding of all of the like minutiae that are hidden behind the jargon. And I think it's, especially on technical topics, easier to have an effective conversation where you don't lose detail if you have, if you, you know, if all that is preserved. So mm -hmm. I, I think it's, for me, it's a case by case basis. I, I think th there's a lot of value to jargon, uh, not like useless jargon, but to like words that are loaded with a lot of underlying explanation in being able to have a more like concise and effective conversation around technical topics. Yeah, I think I agree with respect to what you're saying. I think the points that you made earlier about how the, you know, kind of like the benefits, the risks, the, the non-implementation parts of the explanation, yeah. the, that's kind of what I'm going for with respect to like the non-technical yeah. crowd. Because we're going to get into a space where like these are really technical topics. So there's some areas where we're not going to be able to explain them to the non-technical crowd, but the areas where we can, let's try to do our best. I guess yeah. that's where I'm coming from. Yeah. Uh, agreed. And, uh, you know, also a big piece is in the crypto space is just like the medium where this is delivered. And I don't mean like medium, the, the site, but just like, if you are having to c construct over 70 tweets to explain a topic, maybe that's the wrong place. Oh, I wonder who you're talking about, Fizan. So, <laughs> so, so with stuff like that, like I think, if you're fleshing out an idea, especially around technical implementation of something, and you're trying to think about what are the implications of this, what are the impacts of this, sure, throw it out on Twitter. People will chime in. You can have a conversation with a lot of like jargon or like assumed context. I would say is maybe a better jargon has the implication a connotation of like uselessness. But I think words that have some assumed context might be better. Uh, I, I need one word where I can get that point across. The jar what's the jargon for that? But, uh, <laughs> you know, like you see this on Twitter with like, you know, uh, devs where they'll be having a back and forth. And a lot of it's very opaque if you don't know the minutiae of what they're talking about already. And I think that's okay and necessary. Like in a technical space, you need to be able to have those conversations at that level while you're fleshing out an idea. But that shouldn't be the end of it. Like if you have this large multi-billion dollar coin or token or what have you, like behind any any technical implementation, there's some sort of a motivation and some understanding of the impacts of those uh, technical choices. And I think what you're saying is those need to be communicated much more clearly to, uh, to lay people. Yeah. And just out of curiosity, I went into the thesaurus and I just checked. There's Okay, so there's parlance. That's a pretty good one. There's also patois, which I like. I don't know. Yeah. But like trying to think of a good example of, of what I mean. Like your nominal versus uh, real interest rate example is interesting because if you care about which interest rate someone is talking about, like if the number actually matters to you, it's probably very important whether someone's talking about nominal or real. And if you already have that level of context, then it's probably easier to just use one word than to explain, you know, interest rate with inflation or interest rate without inflation. Right. But the, the example that I had in mind with respect to nominal and real is you'll see it in like USA Today, like things that aren't the Wall Street Journal that are supposed to be uh, more geared towards the public. And yeah. nobody, 
I mean, I'm not going to say nobody because of course there's people who know what nominal and real means, but there's a lot of people who are just getting onboarded into uh, basic finance for the first time and they see it yeah. and it's just like, oh, I don't know what this means. And it's just yeah. too bad because it's actually a really easy concept. Yeah. And I think that there's some amount of like, you can overload some of that information. Like if basic, if what you have is coherent to someone that is a layperson, and there are also some words that they don't know that they can either infer, or if they didn't quite understand, they still get the meaning of the article. I think that's not a bad scenario either, because that's essentially how you learn stuff. Yes. If you got the concept and then you picked up a few words along the way, or you start seeing it in four or five places and like, so like if you only ever see stuff you already know, you'll never learn anything. Um, so I think a little bit of over like overload is, is a good thing, but there's definitely a balance there. Yep. One good concrete example of uh, something that does this very well is the, you know, we do a lot of our front end work in uh, Ember.js. Uh, it's a JavaScript framework. And uh, it's a relatively, I would say, op- you know, opinionated framework in that there's a way to do most things. Uh, it's it's not left up to you as much. And whether it's how you should implement something or how the, the framework itself is going to implement an upcoming feature is uh, generally left up to the community to decide. And, you know, sure, you have Twitter conversations and stuff being fleshed out all over the place, but they have a really good RFC process. And RFC stands for uh, request for something. Comment, Um, maybe? Request for Request for comments, yeah. And so I actually think that they pulled their RFC process from uh, Rust, but I'll speak uh, to the Ember one. So essentially, let's say that Ember decides that we want to switch from proof of work to proof of stake. That's a contrived example. But so what would happen is someone would throw up an RFC that would look similar to, it would be, you know, this GitHub issues that we had discussed earlier. They might create an issue that has the outlines, the problem outlines, the solution, and maybe at a high level outlines the implementation and is now soliciting feedback. And you may have, you know, if if it's something uh, critical, you may have tons and tons of uh, conversation that happens underneath it, addressing all three of those categories, and it can get as technical and detailed as necessary. But then essentially there's a feedback loop where as things get fleshed out, it feeds back into that original summary, and that should essentially be understandable at any level that someone would go. Like someone that doesn't understand all of the technical implementation can still go and see how it might impact them. And so I think something like the RFC process is is probably something that a lot of these teams should be looking at adopting. Yeah. Is that similar to like BIPs and EIPs, like the Bitcoin Improvement Protocol, Ethereum Improvement Protocol? It's kind of like, it's pretty similar, right? Like you put up your thoughts and then you start getting feedback. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, Ember, of course, and then Bitcoin, Ethereum, maybe there's, I think maybe Zcash has some kind of something similar, but certainly not all the teams have it. But yeah, I think that's a good place to, for for non-technical people to just go read about what's going on as well. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Like, so after we've looked at a lot of these bugs and vulnerabilities, we were talking about this before, but like, you say some of these projects feel like they're 10, you know, 10 plus years away. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So, you know, the last couple of weeks, a lot of what I had been looking into was like uh, stuff related to bugs, vulnerabilities, and, you know, essentially things that are not fraud, but like structural issues at the implementation level. And for a lot of these projects, when you start seeing how, how frequent relatively major vulnerabilities still are, like, sometimes I feel like there's still a long way to go. So, you know, looking back, the, the closest sort of parallel that I have is like the tech industry, when you know, in terms of uh, web stuff. So if you look back at like 1999, 2000, 2001, all those, like the huge surge of uh, startups that ultimately failed, there were, you know, a couple of things. One, like fundamentally it was a much, much, much smaller addressable market, like people that had internet and then especially, you know, not having mobile or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So a much smaller addressable market. From a cost perspective, like trying to build anything was 
orders of magnitudes higher for the same amount of functionality as like something today where, you know, we talked about spinning up a cheap AWS instance. And then third, just in terms of capability, your orders of magnitudes, like internet connections were slower, computers were slower, uh, graphics were less capable, just orders of magnitude, less capability at a like fundamental level. And so I think a lot of those things combined meant that a lot of projects that seemed like a good idea in 2000 weren't viable until maybe 2010 or 2015. Yep. And so you see what might be parallels to that in the cryptocurrency space, like the scale thing, definitely. It's still, it's still relatively niche, especially when you compare it to this, you know, something like the web. You look at this same idea with technical maturity, like all these scaling problems we're seeing. Is that similar? Like, do we need way more capacity on some of these major on the main networks for this to be viable. But the one, the thing that doesn't seem the same is just like, because a lot of what we're doing is creating decentralized trust and scarcity and uh, virtual assets, having this like bugs and vulnerabilities not sorted out at a fundamental level across a lot of these networks seems like a more alarming problem. So I think there's a lot of parallels on the, th- the three issues I discussed, but when it comes to this fourth item, I don't know where we are uh, in terms of like, oh, most of these projects are they'll you know six months to a year live and they'll sort through all these critical things, or are there like fundamental issues for most of these that have to be worked out before any real capital or activity will start occurring on these uh, networks? Right. I mean, I've heard uh, descriptions of some of these networks as basically you know whatever their market cap is and called that a a, a bug bounty. They'll always feel they'll always face the threat of an attack, right? And, you know, because a lot of the code is open source and because the networks themselves are are pretty open, there will always be room for people to analyze them from an attack perspective. Yeah. So that's a different kind of risk, uh, yeah. as you're pointing out. Yeah, so that's a completely uncharted territory. And I think it remains to be seen how far away we are from, like, viability of of the scale that we'd consider like you know this is like a successful global network hey everyone this is vikram again thanks for listening to us if you are an exchange a trader or working on a crypto project get in touch with us you can reach us on twitter at quantlayer that's q-u-a-n-t-l-a-y-e-r or email me at vikram at quantlayer.com that's v-i-k-r-a-m like monero at quantlayer.com I will write back. And if you like our podcast so far, please hit subscribe and rate and review us because that would help us a lot. Thanks.